0: And that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. On September the 22nd, 1862, President Abraham Lincoln issued the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which declared that as of January the 1st, 1863, all enslaved people in the states currently engaged in rebellion against the Union shall be then, thenceforward, and forever free. This Emancipation Proclamation paved the way for the permanent abolition of slavery in the United States by the end of January of 1865. The Houses of Congress had passed the 13th Amendment, and it was ratified that December. Lincoln said of the emancipation in February 1865, two months before his assassination, It is my greatest and most enduring contribution to the history of the war. It is in fact the central act of my administration and the great event of the 19th century. As we continue our journey through the book of Exodus, we come to the great emancipation of the children of Israel. We've been working through 13 chapters, 400 years, waiting for this day to come. And the day has finally come. In Exodus chapter 13 and verse 17, it says this, when Pharaoh let the people go. Finally, the day has come. They are being let go. It says, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their mind when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle." So as we begin in chapter 13, verse 17, through the end of chapter 18, this is about a two month period that we're following the children of Israel leaving Egypt and they'll eventually end up at Mount Sinai. So it's about a two month period that we're working here. It'll take us about three weeks to get through that. But I wanna show you a map to help you sort of get a visual because I'm a visual person. So sometimes, especially when you're talking about these things, visual aids help me to understand what we're talking about here. So it said in verse 17 that God didn't lead them The the way of the sea, because here's the picture. This is where they're at, all right? This is Ramses is where they are. This is the promised land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Genesis 17. We have the promise of this land of Canaan that God is gonna give to the children of Israel eventually. And so if we're looking at the map together, what's the easiest path from here to there? right? It's referred to as as the way of the sea. That that journey would have taken the children of Israel about two weeks to get there. Um, So end up spending 40 years in the wilderness or two weeks, right? Like a big, big trade-off here. But God said he didn't let them go the way of the sea because, and we know this now, if you see on the map, these little purple circles there. Those were Philistine armies. So can you imagine 400 years, they've been in slavery, they're coming out, a two-week journey and having to fight the whole way to get to the promised land probably would have not been good for their souls, right? And isn't it interesting that God knows exactly what you need? Sometimes the straight path to what we desire is not the path that God has for us because God knows what is best for us. And so God sends them The way of the wilderness, and you can see the the red line here and the purple line there going back up. Um, I'll just get to the story. The the children of Israel are going to cross the Red Sea, all right? This is the miracle that's going to happen today. And there's some debate, and I'm going to talk about it now. So when we hit it on the text, we'll just swing by it. But there's some debate about where they cross the Red Sea because it can also be translated sea of the reed in the Hebrew language. So there were some lakes, particularly right up in this area that were from the Red Sea because the Red Sea is right here. These are channels. So there's some lakes up here that maybe it was uh, uh, these reed seas because you'd go and there would be reeds. Remember remember, Moses was put in a basket in a lake, in a, in a reed, right in the reeds he was put in there. So it some believe that he, they crossed this Red Sea, which would have been a lake of the Red Sea, maybe somewhere up here, uh, th- this, this lake right here. I would propose to you, and, and again, if, if you're interested in church history I, or, or uh, Bible history, I can send you some articles that I studied this week. I would propose to you that they actually crossed the Red Sea down here. Um, that Moses was headed to Midian. This is where his family was from. You remember his father-in-law was there. That's where he fled after he killed the Egyptian. And so I would propose that he crossed here in this Gulf area of about right here that he went across the Red Sea there. So again, this is uh, just a map. And if you look at the back of your Bibles, if you have a, a hard or like a physical Bible, and you look at the maps in the back, a lot of times they have question marks beside the names of these towns, where they cross, because in some ways we're not 100% sure, but I think there's good evidence, scriptural evidence, as well as historic evidence that would point to the fact that they passed the Red Sea down here. So you can see this two-week journey, getting back to the text, this two-week journey to the promised land, seems to be the easiest way, but because God knows the people and knows that they'll get discouraged and not make it, he sends them the way of the wilderness because he wants to work in their life and teach them a few things along the way. But you may look at verse 18 and ask questions, which I hope to do that as I study as well. It says at the end of verse 18, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. So that's sort of weird, right? That they translate it that way. And I'm telling you that they didn't go the way of the sea because they would have to go into battle. What What is he saying? What is Moses saying when he says they, they were prepared for battle? The idea there is that they were in formation. So sometimes I think when we picture the children of Israel leaving Egypt, it's like it was a scurried, like, just grab things off the shelf, throw it in bags, and throw it over your shoulder and run for your life kind of idea. It was actually, they were in formation as they were leaving. So that's what the text is saying in verse 18, when it says they were equipped for battle, that they didn't just sort of crazily run out of Egypt, that there was actually formation. They were working in sync as they were moving out, even though God wasn't going to send them to war. Eventually he will have them go to war. But as they're leaving, they're leaving in formation. There's one other thing that they wanted to, Moses wanted us to be aware of. And in verse 19, he tells us what that one thing is. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. So they're leaving, they're going the way of the wilderness. And Moses adds in this footnote of, hey, just FYI, Joseph bones were carried out of the land of Egypt. Why does Moses put that in there? Because remember, Gen- Genesis and Exodus tie together. This is one really continuous book that we're reading here. In Genesis chapter 50 In verse 24, Joseph is in Egypt, he's about to die. And he tells his brothers, God will visit you and bring you up out of this land, that's the land of Egypt, to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. That's to the promised land, Canaan. Verse 25, then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Moses puts this in the text in verse 19, to remind us that God is a faithful God. That 400 plus years earlier, when Joseph dies and he tells his brothers, hey, when you leave this land, cause God's gonna be true to his word, take my bones with you. Moses is taking his bones with him because God is faithful to do what he says he will do. Then verse 20, then. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So we see this way of the wilderness. We see the bones of Moses are coming. And then we get to see their GPS system of how God is going to direct them. God gives them this cloud. It's one cloud. So sometimes we like to think, well, it was a pillar of fire or a pillar, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. That that was two different things. It's just one. It's, it's one cloud. During the day, this formulating cloud and necessarily wasn't a pillar. It was just a bunch of clouds that had come together would lead them by day. And then at night, the cloud would glow. right, so picture something that glows in the dark. At night, the cloud would glow and lead them where they should go. What's interesting about this cloud by day and this pillar of fire by night is that some scholars believe that this was a way not only to direct the people, but to protect the people. You ever been in the wilderness in 100-degree weather? It doesn't really give you energy to continue to travel for very long, right? So that God used this cloud over them during the day. It would keep them cool during the day. And then if you ever been in the wilderness at night, it gets really, really cold, right? And so God would use the, cloud, the, the pillar of fire by night to not only direct them, but to keep them warm. Isn't God good? That he would protect his people and lead his people. Not just say, hey, go out in the wilderness, figure out what you can figure out and you'll get where you'll get and it'll be okay. But he's actually directing the people through this pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and think to myself, that sort of be nice to have one of those today, right? We reverse out of our garages And we go and all of a sudden, boom, there's a cloud right in front of me that's going to direct me to where I should go. And I know that's sort of Google today, but they're not God, right? So so this could be God, right? He's directing us and we could follow. And like, this is the person I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life with. It's like, oh, boom, the cloud is right over you. Come here, give me a hug. We're gonna get married, right? Like, this is the job I'm supposed to take. This is the interview that I'm supposed to have. Like, we can look at them and say, Boy, I wish we had that today. But in reality, I think we have something way better. You see, if we had a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, we'd have to go to Egypt, right? We'd all have to be in the same place to follow the cloud. We'd all have to be in the same place to follow the pillar of fire. But here's what God did for you through the person of Jesus Christ. He's given you what we refer to as the Holy Spirit. And so now... God doesn't dwell in a cloud that we follow. God dwells in each one of our hearts. And the Bible says that he is the helper. And so this Holy Spirit that lives inside of us directs our steps. He helps us to know the way that we should go. He convicts us when we go the wrong path, right? He leads us. He protects us. He guides us. And so God is giving us something way better than a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He's given us the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 14, chapter 14, we'll spend most of our time in this chapter today. The Lord comes to Moses and he tells Moses, he wants him to turn back because he's going to create this um, delusion to Pharaoh. who's going to hear about it in verse three of chapter 14. It says, for Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. Right, so that's why I would, some of the reason I believe that it's down in that valley area, that wilderness is because you see that they were surrounded by the Red Sea and the two gulfs. So they're in this area and he sees them sort of going around in a circle a little bit. And Pharaoh's gonna pounce on that and be like, hey, they don't know what they're doing, let's go. But listen to what the Lord says to Moses. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart again. And he will pursue them. And I think we get to the point of the Red Sea crossing here when it says this, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. This is why what we're about to see happen is going to happen so that God can get the glory and they will know this name Yahweh. Remember what Pharaoh said when Moses and Aaron went to him the first time? He said, I've never heard of this name, Yahweh. Who is this God? Well, he's about again to know the name of God. He's about to know who Yahweh is because we're about to see God versus Pharaoh part two. So they're wandering in the wilderness. The king of Egypt was told that the people had fled and the mind of Pharaoh, he says, basically we have made a grave mistake. We need to go get these people back. So he puts together an army of about 600 chariots, men, and they horsemen, and they go after the children of Israel. And the Bible says that as they drew drew near to them, Israel looks up and sees them coming. And the Bible says that they feared greatly. Can you imagine them in this moment? Like how disheartening did that have to be? Here their emancipation has come, they've been delivered, this is so exciting, they're getting away from the slavery, and then you turn around, and here comes Pharaoh with 600 chariots, coming to overtake them. The Bible says that they cried out to the Lord, which was good, and then they got upset with Moses, which is typical of how it would work. And they said, is it because that there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? They're like, Moses, basically you brought us out here to die. Thanks, buddy. You're a great leader. You know, it's like, yeah, let's do this. But look at how Moses responds. And I love the confidence with with which Moses responds to the people. Moses said to the people in verse 13, fear not, stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you; you have only to be silent. (laughs) I love the confidence of Moses right now. Right? It's like you picture a a team that is playing together, a football team that's playing together, and all the odds are stacked against them. And they go to get in the huddle with their coach, and the coach says. Get your head up, right? Like, let's, let's keep focused on the game plan. It's gonna work. Let's stay after it. This is what Moses is doing to the children of Israel. Is they're whining at God and they're complaining against Moses. Like, you're an idiot. You brought us out here again. To, you brought us out here to kill us and to bury us out here. He says, no, fear not. And I love verse 14. This is a great verse. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. God's got this, don't you worry. I think we would do well as a church family to hear this verse today in our life and in the culture that we live in. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. We live in a culture that we feel the need to have to respond to everything to make a stand on everything. And sometimes I believe it is right for us to fight, yes, but sometimes it is good for us to let the Lord fight and we be silent and watch him work. And in, in pages ahead, he's gonna tell them to fight. He's gonna call them to go to war. But right now in this moment, he says, it is good for you to be silent and just to watch the salvation of the Lord. I would encourage us as a church to maybe take heed to these words that let's let the Lord fight and then why? Because he gets all the credit. It wasn't about how cool we, we are or how we manipulated those words and, and made them repent or how we said this certain thing and we got it all right. No, the Lord did, does the fighting and we just get the opportunity to watch him fight and say, look at what God has done. Then in verse 15, the Lord comes to Moses and says, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. I love, I love it because the Lord says, stop praying and start moving, right? Like stop this whining at me and Moses, let's just move forward. And how are they going to move forward when they're trapped? Because the Egyptians are coming to them and they've got this sea in front of them. Well, God always makes a way. Verse 16, Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And listen again to the Lord's words, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Again, God says, it's all about my glory and my name. I'm gonna take care of it. I've got this battle. Let me fight this war. And so Moses does what God says. The Bible says in the verses that follow that the angel of the Lord in this cloud moved from leading them to standing between them and the Egyptians that were coming behind them like a wall and that they crossed this Red Sea section overnight. Two million people crossed this Red Sea section over, o- overnight. And here's how God did it. He went between them And on one side of this cloud, it was darkness, the Bible says. So the side that the children of Israel were on was complete darkness. They couldn't see, they couldn't move, they couldn't do anything because it was completely dark. But on the other side of the cloud, it was like a huge light shining on the Red Sea. And so this huge light shining on the Red Sea directed the people where to go. Now where I proposed that they crossed is about a half a mile wide. So the sea itself would go down to about 5,000 feet, but there's this area where it comes up like this and it goes like this, and then it goes back down, and it's about 500 feet. At that area, it was about a half a mile wide, and it was about 13 miles across to the other side. And so God gets this big spotlight and shines it right where he wants the children of Israel to cross. And God holds up, or Moses holds up the staff and the waters part and there's dry ground and they began to cross. Now, here's the really neat thing. I want you to think about it with 2 million people on this piece of, or this little shore that was probably about 5 miles wide. They began to go through this half mile, 13 mile trek. Just to give you a visual, I Googled this. From our church up to North Oak is about a half a mile. So that is the width. If you want to picture the width of, that they're going through, from here to about North Oak Traffic Way is about a half a mile. Then they went on that path for 13 miles. 13 miles gets us to about Northtown High School or Northtown area. So 2 million people overnight went across. On dry land, this is incredible church, went across on dry land that the Lord had separated for them for them to go across. Once they all got to the other side after the night was over, God removes the cloud, the cloud that is making it bright for them and has made it dark for the Egyptian. He removes the cloud, takes the cloud. The Bible says that he causes confusion, and then look at what happens in Exodus 13 and verse 20. Five, 14 and verse 25. As they begin, then they're, they're confused and they begin to pursue them. They're going into this part of uh, the ocean or going into this part of the sea. Their wheels get clogged and the Egyptians say, let us flee before Israel for what? The Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Moses was right. The Lord is fighting for them, right? And so they, as they are pursuing them, the Lord is fighting for them and their wheels are slowing down and they're like, we have got to get out of here. And at that moment, the Lord tells Moses to stick his staff back over the sea. And when he sticks it back over, the waters crash in and the Bible says that he kills all of Pharaoh's army. God takes care of Of his enemy. And then look at how the people respond in Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant. Moses. The Bible says as the people are standing on the shore, looking back to this area that they just crossed. And as, as Egyptian soldiers are washing up onto the shore, they're seeing the salvation of the Lord. At that moment, it brought them trust in God. It assured them that God was for them and with them. Here's the point of chapter 14 and the Red Sea Crossing. The Red Sea Crossing is all about the name and the glory of God. Sometimes we like to take this story and we like to make it about us. Like you come to that place in your life where you can't go across and you need somebody to rescue, right? And we, we, there, There's a point to that but in reality, this is all about the name and the glory of God. He says it repeatedly in Exodus 14. He says, we're, we're gonna go this way, not the easy way. Where, sure, I could have taken care of the Philistines and I could have led that way, but I'm leading you through the wilderness and even to cross the Red Sea so that the name and the glory of God will go throughout the whole earth. And how do I know that the point of this text is the name and the glory of God? Because all throughout the Old Testament, as they are talking about this Red Sea crossing, they come back to the name and the glory of God. Let me share some with you. Joshua chapter two and verse nine, Rahab is hiding some spies that are coming in to take the land of Canaan where God has promised to them. And listen to what she says about their God. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that the inhabitants melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens and above, in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab. Not a follower of God yet is saying, we've heard. We've heard about the name of your God and the glory of your God. Nehemiah talks about it in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. It says, and you saw the afflictions of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is this day." As Nehemiah looks back to the Red Sea crossing, he's saying, What's it, what was it all about? It was about God making a name for himself. It was all about the name and the glory of God In Psalms 106, verses 7 through 12, David declares this in his song, both we and our fathers have sinned, we have committed iniquity, we have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but were rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Remember when they were stuck there and they're complaining to God and they're complaining about Moses? He says they they sinned there, but listen to verse eight. Yet God saved them for his namesake, that he might make known his mighty power. Again, it was all about the name and the glory of God. Isaiah says it in Isaiah 63, in verse 12, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths? And the answer is, God did, right? Because why? It is all about his name and his glory. The children of Israel looked at the crossing of the Red Sea, not as a way to make much of their faith, because they know they didn't have the faith to do it, but to make much of the object of their faith, God, Yahweh. We, when we talk about sports, it's the idea that you play for the name of the team on the front of your jersey, not on the back of your shirt, right? Not on the back of your jersey. Why? They, had, they were making it about the one that it was about. It's about His name and His glory. You see, the crossing of the Red Sea was to the Old Testament believer what the resurrection is to the New Testament believer. So, the Old Testament believers looked back at the Red Sea and say, did you hear about our God? Did you hear what he did? They were couldn't go anywhere. They were stuck, this Red Sea. He spread it apart, dry land. They went across 2 million people, got to the other side. Water came on and killed all the enemies of God. This is incredible. And we today as God's people, we don't point back to the Red Sea crossing, we point back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we like them say, look, only God could do that. Only God could live the life that we should have lived. Only Jesus could die the death that we deserved to die. Only Jesus could go into the waters of the wrath of God, the judgment of God on our behalf. And only Jesus could come out on the other side and be raised to life. Only Jesus could do that. And so the question I would have for you then is this, do you look back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as a defining moment in your life? Do you point back to that day to say, you know what? The day I realized that Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried and he rose again is the day my life was never the same. Have you had that moment, that experience with God where you put your faith and trust in him alone? See, Someday when I stand before the Lord and he asks me, Steve, why should I let you into heaven? I'm not gonna say why, cause I had really good faith, man. Like, didn't you say, I was a pastor for crying out loud. It takes a lot of faith to be a pastor. I'm not gonna say that to him. What am I gonna say? I I stand before you and the only reason you should let me into heaven is because you said that Jesus died for me, that he was buried and he rose again. And I believe that you said, if I believe that in my heart and confess with my mouth that I'm saved, and so you gotta be true to your word. And if you're relying on anything else, then I would say you need to reconsider your heart and your life. If you're relying on a prayer that you prayed, if you're relying on baptism or communion or what you put in in the offering or, or any of those good work kind of things, if you're relying on any of those things, you're missing the point because your life is for the name and the glory of God. And that begins with you putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. This is our salvation is about the name and the glory of God. Ephesians 1, 5 says that we've been adopted into the family of God. Why? Verse six, for the praise of his name. Our sanctification, which is becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, is about the name and the glory of God. Matthew 5, 16, it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and do what? Glorify your father who's in heaven. So our growth in Christ is all about the name and the glory of God. And ultimately someday our glorification, this idea that one day we will see Jesus face to face, that one day we will get to our promised land, that is heaven and our glorification where we will become like Christ. Even then it will be all about the name and the glory of God. Listen to John's words in Revelation chapter 22. In verses three and four, as he gets a glimpse at the new heaven and the new earth, he says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. (laughs) Pretty clear what heaven's gonna be all about. It's gonna be all about the name and the glory of God. I would encourage you today to remember that your life, my life, is all about the name and the glory of God. If we live this way, it changes how we view our work. It changes how we view our addictions. It, it changes how we view our good days and our bad days. It changes how we view our suffering. Why? Because it's ultimately not about me. It's about the name and the glory of God. Because sometimes we're going to be led to places where only God can get the glory. And that's how it should be. Because that's what we were made for. We were made to make much of the name and the glory of God. So how do the people respond then? They believed God, the Bible says, they feared the Lord. And then in chapter 15, the Bible says they have a party, that they sing together and celebrate what God has done. Verse 15, verse one, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. If you go down to verse 21, the ladies get in on it too and they sing a song in response to Moses's song as well. So can you imagine in this moment, two million people on the other side of the Red Sea, believed God, fearing God, and now they're singing to God. Can you imagine the noise of two million people singing? You go to a concert, right? go to a concert at Arrowhead or whatever it's called now. Um, you go to that concert and you hear 40, 50, 60,000 people sing. It's loud. Garth Brooks concert, pretty loud. You know, when people are singing, got friends in low places, it gets pretty loud in there. Right? But can you imagine 2 million people? And they're not singing just cause it's a sort of a catchy lyric, catchy catchy uh, phrase. They're singing because of what has just happened. They're singing because they're seeing this, this enemy of God that has, that has kept them in slavery for years, floating at their feet. That God has been true to his word and they sing to God. Here's the reality church. The people of God are a singing people. The people of God are a singing people. You go back in history, the people of God sing. They sing because it's just the natural thing that when God changes our hearts and our life, we sing to him. We praise him with our mouth. The past, the people sing. The present, the people, we sing together. That's why it's important that we gather and sing. Like when we gather as a church family, we're going to sing Why? Because it's a natural response as we look at God and who he is, we just sing to God. And do you understand that we will always sing? In fact, here's the really cool part. In Revelation chapter 15, John, again, is getting a glimpse of what the future is going to look like. And in John chapter 15 and verse 3, it says this that in heaven, a group of people, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God. What song are they singing? Exodus chapter 15. So how cool is it that we're about to read this song and that someday, whenever the Lord chooses to come back, whenever he chooses to set up this new heaven and new earth, one of the songs that we're going to sing is gonna be Exodus chapter 15. Isn't that incredible? So here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand and I'm gonna read through the song together. I'll read out loud, you're gonna follow along. Our band's gonna come on the stage because I feel like we can't end with just Moses' song. I feel like we gotta sing a song, right? Because in, the real, in reality is we were going to read through this song that Moses wrote that someday we'll sing in heaven. And although we don't have a Red Sea crossing, we understand that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we've been made alive together with Christ. That we were once lost in our darkness, groping around, trying to find life. And God in his grace sent the gospel to us and this light illuminated to us the hope that we can have in Jesus. And so although these words may not be the same words that we would say about Pharaoh and his army, we it's the same God. And so I want us to hear these words and I want us to think about the day that Jesus transformed your life, the day that you saw the resurrection, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for what it was and what it is and what it will be and how it changed your life. And then I'm going to read Moses' song And then I'm going to let Clint lead us in a song called Always. Remembering that God will be true to his promises and he will always come through. And here's the deal. If we believe that, we'll sing it. When they were standing on the other side of that sea, there wasn't anybody sitting there being like, you know, I just know I'm not real sure. You don't walk through on dry ground and see God destroy your enemies and be like, "Ah, I'm not sure. When we look to Jesus Christ, we don't look at the empty tomb and be like, "Ah, I'm not sure. Our enemy was crushed. We've been set free. So let's sing like it. Listen to the words of Moses. Again, just amazing that in Revelation 15, this is the song they were singing in heaven. and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemies. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its full fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. And you blew with your wind, the sea covered them and they sank like lead in the mighty waters." Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. Listen, they didn't even see that Moses did that. They saw it as the hand of the Lord. Your life and my life is not about my name. It's about the name and the glory of God. You have led them in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed and we are his redeemed people. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistine. Now are the chiefs of Eden dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in And plant them on your mountain, the place, O Lord, which you made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. And we said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.